This is not an official podcast of the National Society Daughters of the American Revolution, NSDAR, and does not necessarily represent the position of the NSDAR. This interview is being conducted for the Daughter Dialogues Oral History Project. The interviewer is Risha Rainey. The narrator is Joyce Mosley. Joyce, where are you from? I'm actually raised in Philadelphia, born in here in Philadelphia, just outside the city. I was born in 1946. Raised by a single mom, I have three brothers, two sisters. My sister and brother still live in this area. My youngest brother was an attorney for Goldman Sachs, and he lives in New York. Went to college in this area and worked in the D.C. area for about six years and during one of those crises when they laid off non-essential people, I ended up without a job. So I moved back to the area, wanted to move somewhere where they had a good school system. What did you study in college? Business and human resources were my two majors. My mother was a daycare teacher. She taught two generations of daycare children in this area. I still run into people to say to me, you know, your mother was my daycare teacher or your mother was a teacher of my son. And for over 30 years, she taught daycare. And in your professional life, you said you studied business. What did you do with that? Did you go into a career in business management? I spent 32 years in human resources and the last four with international companies as the United States Benefits Director. Worked for companies like Ikea and some chemical companies and some consulting companies. Did you have any hobbies growing up? I like to read. Um, I like history. So it's kind of being the historian for my family kind of melts those two things together. I My son is adopted. I adopted him. He came to live with me when he was two years old, and he was what was considered then a hard-to-place child, child because people were only looking for babies. But because he was classified as a hard-to-place child, I was able to adopt him as a single parent, which was highly unusual to be able to do that at that period of time. They wanted to place children in a two-parent home, but I convinced them that it was much better for him to be in a one-parent home rather than to be in the foster care system. And what year was this? 1973. So that sounds really forward-thinking, like you said, to do a single-parent adoption. What made you want to do that? Philadelphia had a program, it was called Wednesday's Child, and every Wednesday they featured a child that was in the foster care system that was available for adoption. And my son was featured. He had the saddest look on his face, and you could tell he was had been crying because he had a tear in his eye. And he just looked so unhappy. I decided that was going to be my son. So I approached the adoption agency took me a little more than a year to convince them that I would be a good parent to him. And my mother was a single parent. I knew I could I could do this. And I had lots of support. My family embraced him and made him part of the family. So it wasn't that much of a challenge because of the sports system I had. And I joined a group of 
other single women like myself who were interested in adopting. I just happened to be the first one out of the group to adopt. Did you get any recognition for being the first? I several times over the years, there are actually some stories and press out on the internet of my son and I when he was little, when he played football at Villanova. The last story was my son and his sons. He has three sons. They are 18, 20, 24. The younger two are at the University of Maryland, and they play football like their father did. My son played football for Villanova and went on to get an MBA, and he's a manager postmaster at one of the Philadelphia post offices. How did you handle the adoption conversation with him? Was it early on when he was little, or did you wait until later in his life? He's always known he was adopted. He doesn't have any memory, really, of coming to live with me because he was two and a half, but because there was no father, it was important to me to be very clear and honest with him that it was a single parent adoption. And so I didn't have to worry about a conversation when we were getting ready to go to court to make the adoption official. I remember asking him if he wanted a different name. It was his opportunity to change his name. And his answer to me, a three-year-old, was he already knew how to spell Kevin, so he would keep Kevin. And tell me about some of the recognition you received for being the first single-parent adoption. I did a lot of volunteer work, actually, with the Adoption Center. They would ask me to be a representative to talk to other women that were interested in adopting. I ended up spending 17 years on the board of directors for the National Adoption Center here in Philadelphia. Did you help other single parents do adoptions? I did both to walk through the steps of how to adopt a child, but also what that meant. You know, if you had a single lifestyle and was used to the fact that your time was your time, that didn't happen once you got a child, especially depending on the age of the child. So part of the coaching, the mentoring of adopting potential single women was, you know, explaining how different your life would be. Did you ever encounter any single father-parent adoptions? Several in in this area. I got recognition, I guess twice, as family of the year, my son and I, because as a teenager, he also um, would talk to prospective adoptive parents on what it was like to be adopted and how he felt. So we were awarded by the National Adoption Center the family of the year. And then at another occasion, we were given the volunteers of the year. And there were several men in our group of single parents that adopted. And they seemed to be very successful. They understood what it would take. They stepped into the role and they were very successful in rearing the child. Did those men ever tell you what their motivations were for having stepped into the role of a single parent adoption? Some of them grew up as foster children. Some of them, like the women, did not have a, a spouse, and but they still wanted to adopt. It seems to me that family is very important to you because you mentioned that you like to do genealogical research. How did that come about? I made a promise to my grandmother that I would continue documenting the family history. My family history, I can go back to the 1670s with Europeans coming to the colonies 
and a lot of that was documented a lot of it was not so um, she asked me to make sure that our oral history was thoroughly researched and was documented she knew I liked history but that was my entry into really being the family historian but the women in my family had always saved history documented our history were able to take information that they had and make sure it was in a place where it could survive and be stored. So there's my family histories at the University of Pennsylvania, Howard University, Yale University, Historic Society of Pennsylvania, New York. It was all over, but never in a cohesive place. And that's part of what I've done. I've been able to collect it, get copies where I needed them, but it is laid out to the point where a legacy organization would accept it as documentation. What do you mean by a legacy organization? Example is the Daughters of the American Revolution. You have to prove your lineage in order to be a member. So I'm a member of several organizations like that. The Colonial Daughters, the founding families of Pennsylvania, New York, and New Jersey. That way, I have the proof that my research is legitimate and someone else has acknowledged it as being legitimate history for my family. Did you always know that you descended from a Revolutionary War patriot? I did. The oral history in my family was that Cyrus Bustle baked bread for George Washington's troops. Who was Cyrus Bustle? Oh, I'm sorry. Cyrus Bustle is my seventh great-grandfather, and he was born a slave, 1732, purchased his freedom in 1769. So he was a free man during the Revolutionary War, and he operated a bakery in Burlington, New Jersey. When the Revolutionary War came, he did not fight. He was a Quaker, had been raised Quaker and lived the lifestyle of a Quaker. So he did not take up arms and fight. So instead, his contribution was baking bread for the starving troops at Valley Forge the winter of 1777. How did he end up growing up Quaker if he was enslaved? The person that owned him was his grandfather, who was a Quaker. His grandfather owned him. Yes. Explain that story, please. Cyrus Bustle was the child of Samuel Bustle Jr. And his father owned Cyrus's mother. And so when Cyrus was born as an enslaved person, he was the property of his grandfather. And he lived with his grandfather until the age of 10 when his grandfather died and he was sold to a family friend. He lived with his family friend until he was 30. The family friend of Judge Allen, and Judge Allen had promised Cyrus that he would free him, but he died before he was able to free Cyrus, and his Judge Allen's son was going to sell Cyrus, and Cyrus made arrangements for a man that he knew in the community to purchase him, and he would work for this man for seven years, and at the end of the seven years, he would obtain his freedom. At the end of seven years, Cyrus was free, 
during that seven years, he learned the skill of baking. And so he was free with a skill and he was able to then marry and raise his children because he had a income. Tell me about Cyrus's mother. His mother's name was Prathina. She was owned by Cyrus's grandfather. She never was free. And that was one of the interesting discoveries that I made. She was passed down from generation to generation until she was too old to work. And at that point, Cyrus took his horse and buggy, went to New Jersey, and was able to bring his mother to live with him her final years. She lived in Philadelphia with Cyrus and his family. I was able to find letters in the New York Historic Society that Cyrus had written to the man that owned his mother. And it's 1790 is when he wrote these letters. They're handwritten. And it's one of my treasures. Why was he writing letters? To whom was he writing them? So he was writing a letter to his brother-in-law, Delaplane, who had married Cyrus's half-sister, Mary Bustle. And because his mother still was owned by Delaplane, he was writing to say his mother was very sick. It says, Dear friend, I am writing to inform you that my mother, your slave, is very ill and will probably not last much longer. If you would like to see her before she passes away, you should come soon. And then the next letter says that she had died July 1st at nine o'clock in the morning. His ancient mother departed this life and he talked about the fact that she was buried and he wanted to settle up with Delaplane because apparently he, Delaplane, owed Cyrus money. Why would Cyrus invite her slave owner to come see her before she passes? Because Delaplane was married to Cyrus's half-sister. So Cyrus's mother had been in the family since a child. And from what I can tell, they had a good relationship. I mean, she worked in the house. Her child was the half-sibling of Mary Bustle. Sounds like a complicated relationship. Yes, it does. And I hadn't realized until I found this letter that she was never free. Cyrus's children, he had eight children. They were all free because their mother was free and Cyrus was free. In the last letter that you said he wrote to Delaplane, Cyrus was settling up money. What In what way? Apparently, from what this says, is that because Cyrus's mother was his slave and Cyrus had taken on the responsibility of taking care of her, some kind of arrangement was made where Delaplane would pay Cyrus room and board for taking care of his property. So he was asking Delaplane to settle their account. How do you feel about this story of knowing about Cyrus and his mother never being free? It's troubling um, that your whole life you be- you're a piece of property you belong to somebody i hadn't really i knew cyrus was free i knew he was born enslaved had purchased his freedom but it wasn't until i found these letters that i had really sat down and thought about the fact that there was no freedom for his mother Cyrus was of african descent from his mother and of european descent through his father Yes. Was there any other mixed race heritage? I've read where there was some Indian. I know the woman he married, Elizabeth Moray, is European, African, and Lenape Indian. There's, in some of the Quaker documents, 
they say Cyrus had some Native American blood, but I haven't been able to authenticate that. Cyrus saw that his mother was never free by the United States, but yet contributed to the fight for independence for this nation. The only thing I can say is that that was true of a lot of runaway slaves that ended up fighting for both sides of the War of Independence. It must have really been hard to settle within your own mind that the contradiction of it all. You mentioned that he opened up a bakery. What else did he do as an adult? When he was first freed, he had, as I said, he had learned to to bake as a in his 30s while he was the property of his last owner. He actually paid a boy to teach him to read and write, so he wanted to have those skills. His granddaughter wrote a biography about Cyrus, and there are many stories in there, but the one I like the most is when Cyrus was out riding his horse, and back then, if you were of a lower status than the person in front of you on a dusty road, you stayed behind them and kind of had to suck in their dust from the horse. And so um, this day, a magistrate was in his wagon on a dusty road, and Cyrus knew that the understanding was as as a person of color, he had to stay behind the magistrate. But Cyrus being an independent person he was, he galloped his horse and passed the magistrate, and then the magistrate was in Cyrus's horse's dust. The man yelled at Cyrus to say he would not buy any more bread from him. He wouldn't shop in his bakery any longer. And Cyrus yelled back, fine with me. You know, you could do that. It just showed the independence of Cyrus. It showed how he had the strength to go from an enslaved person to a a leader of his community. He moved his family to Philadelphia after the Revolutionary War, became very active with the Underground Railroad. How did you find these stories? The Quakers have fantastic notes. They documented everything. So a lot of what I know about Cyrus is from the Quaker diaries, the Quaker records that are housed at Swarthmore College and Bryn Mawr and Haverford College. They actually documented Cyrus, his children, and several Quaker historians have written books and articles about Cyrus. How did he contribute to the Underground Railroad? He was able to help to provide places for stops. His sons were agents of the Underground Railroad. One of his sons was the youngest agent at 17. What other activities did they help with? So Cyrus, although he was Quaker, and he lived most of his life as a Quaker, he raised money to start several of the African-American churches in Philadelphia. He was the first person to give money to buy a building for the African Episcopal Church of St. Thomas, which is the oldest Episcopal church started by Absalom Jones. And it was across the street from Mother Bethel Church, started by Richard Allen. And Cyrus worked with both of those men to improve the condition of free people and enslaved people. How did he help to improve the condition? They raised money 
to be able to buy food and supplies and clothes to help move the enslaved people that were running away from place to place. Philadelphia had a pandemic. They had a yellow fever and about a third of the population of Philadelphia died. And Cyrus and his wife and a lot of the African-American residents of Philadelphia raised money to help to feed the sick and to take care of the orphans. You said you always knew this information. Did you feel any particular way about knowing that your ancestor contributed to the American Revolution? History was passed down per- through the generations with our oral history. And my grandmother, who was very proud of her history, would tell her grandchildren exactly, you know, the stories of Cyrus and his children and the fact that Cyrus started a, a school for children of color in his house after he retired from being a baker. He operated that school with the help of Quaker support. But that kind of started for me the understanding that a lot of people in my family, both men and women, were teachers. And again, in my mind, that goes back to how important education was to Cyrus and how he continued it with making sure that his children were educated and even his daughters had a skill. They made hats, they were millineries, or they were seamstress, and they were able to improve the quality of their life through the skills they learned. Take me back to a time where your grandmother was sharing these stories with you and your siblings and your other family members. Bring me into that room with you. What was that like? Tell me, were you? what did it look like? What did it feel like? Where Were you sitting around in a circle? Was this over dinner table? Was this out on a porch? How did this happen? It was wherever she could get a chance to tell us the history, whether it was at our annual family reunion or it was you'd sit at the kitchen table. She always wanted to impress upon her grandchildren how important education was, and she used the story of Cyrus and Cyrus's children and how they were free people in the 1700s and what that meant And they always felt that they had a responsibility to give back because they were able to improve their life. And so they used some of that that blessing to give back to other people. What did that mean to your grandmother? You mentioned that she wanted you all to know that your family was free in the 1700s. Why was that important for you to know that in particular? What, What did that mean? as a family, that your people were free in the 1700s? Part of what she wanted us to know was that we we lived in a city, we were city people, and we were able to have, for what I think of the time, a fairly normal life. We were very active in churches. In fact, my family started several churches in Philadelphia, and that was very important because As free people, we could do that because we had the opportunity to move around the city. And that made a big difference as to how we could relate. We had, I'm thinking of trying to think of a word here. So we, we had status. 
I guess would be a good word. Um, we had status. We were ministers back in the early days. Cyrus's daughters married ministers. So it was a pretty good life for people of color in early Philadelphia. What did your grandmother hope that that would do for her descendants, knowing that your family had status in the 1700s? She equated that with education. I mean, the the thing she stressed at us continuously is we we needed to continue to get educated. We needed to use our God-given talents. I had, as I said, there were lots of teachers in my family. Cyrus's granddaughter and grandsons were artists. David Bustle Bowser was a very famous artist and painted John Brown sitting in his house because his house was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Those kinds of stories were resonant in my family so that we knew these historical figures that were part of our family. Frederick Douglass's cousin married into the family. Stories of Frederick Douglass were passed from generation to generation as someone that was highly regarded in our family. Were there other members of notable historic importance that were also married into or a member of your family? Madeline Burr Turner is the granddaughter of Jean-Pierre Burr and the great-granddaughter of the third vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was the vice president. He's the one that shot Hamilton. And how is that related to your family? Aaron Burr's great-granddaughter married a first cousin. And the first, the second pastor of St. Thomas Episcopal Church, William Douglas, he was the grandson of Cyrus Bustle. Robert Douglas was a painter during this early Philadelphia. He's also grandson of Cyrus. And he was one of the few Africans that was allowed to train at the Philadelphia fine arts school. He was also invited to England to paint a portrait of the Queen, but because the State Department said African Americans were not citizens, this was before the emancipation, so they weren't citizens, and they wouldn't give him a passport to leave the country. And I think that story is relevant because Paul Robeson's also in my family, and a similar thing happened to Paul. They took his passport. How is Paul in your family? Paul's mother was a Bustle. Paul's mother, Maria Louisa Bustle, married William Robeson. They met at Lincoln University, married, and Paul was their youngest child. Did your family ever talk about personal interactions with Paul Robeson? Yes. Not until he was really older did he spend more time in Philadelphia. As he was older he and his wife died, he lived with his older sister in West Philadelphia. But the stories of Paul are the movies he made, the concerts, the activists. He was a a very interesting man in terms of the fact that they said he was a communist, but he was not. He was, he looked at liberties and he wanted to have all people treated the same way. He sung for the miners in Ireland and had concerts in South Africa as a black man in the 50s and 60s. I want to go back to the wife of Cyrus Bustle. Tell me more about her and her parents. 
Okay, so Elizabeth Moray, her grandfather, Humphreys Moray, was the first mayor of Philadelphia. He came to the colonies in 1640s, 1650s, somewhere in there. And he made a success and made money in New York. And then in the 1680s, he moved to Philadelphia. He purchased land from William Penn in both downtown Philadelphia and out in what was farm country at that time. He had a son, Richard Moray, and Richard lived in a marriage kind of a relationship with this woman that was European, Native American, and African. Carmona was her name. And they lived as husband and wife, even though it was illegal for them to get married. They had five children. Elizabeth was the middle child. Elizabeth was always free because her mother was freed before the children were born. Who freed her mother? Her father was originally owned by her grandfather. And her grandfather, um, when he died, left, passed the slaves down to Richard. And Richard freed her. And as I said, they had five children. When Richard died, he made arrangements for 198 acres of land to be transferred to Cremona, Elizabeth's mother, and with a Quaker in charge as trustee of the land, because at that point, women couldn't own land, and certainly not that much land. So um, it had to be left in trust for her and her children, but through an arrangement with a Quaker. So she was one of the richest women in Pennsylvania at that time because of the amount of land she owned. So then Elizabeth was free. Elizabeth worked as a servant for a Philadelphia family. She also was raised as a Quaker. And so when she met Cyrus and they, they married, then they had eight children that were free. Why did you decide to take this information and compile it in order to apply to be a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution? It was compiled before I submitted it, so it wasn't just for the daughters. It was to be able to fulfill my promise to my grandmother that I would document and put information in categories and be able to share that with the rest of the families. And so I put that information together. But I also used that information to write a children's book because I wanted the children in my family to know this history as well. I didn't want to lose it. So the children's book starts before the Revolutionary War and goes through the, up to the Civil War so that the children in my family will know the contributions that were made by their family members. Why did you decide to join the Daughters of the American Revolution? Because they were a group that I could say my documentation is correct because the Daughters of the American Revolution, the, the Daughters of the 17th Century, the First Families of Pennsylvania, they've all evaluated this data and it is correct. It just it gave credibility to all my documentation. Do you have any interest in actually becoming active in the society? You're a very new member, is that correct? 
Yes, I am a new member, and yes, I will be active in that member, and I've got some cousins that will be joining the daughters. You've been a member for less than a year. Yes. Right. And why did your cousins want to join too? I've done all the work. (laughs) So they actually are interested in being a part of the legacy organization. And since I've already done the work and they don't have to take much effort to submit their membership, they're interested in doing that. How was the application process since you had already had this information together for your family and documented? Did you simply submit it to the DAR and wait to be approved? It took almost three years to get approval because although I had all of the information, because Cyrus wasn't a soldier, he didn't have a pension, he didn't meet the normal criteria, but it took them a while to agree that the documentation from the quartermaster department on baking bread was legitimate and had enough credibility that they accepted the application. Where did you find this document from the quartermaster? At Howard University, there is documentation on my family and going through the Bustle Bowser information at Howard, I found the document. Why did Howard University have documentation on your family? Some of my family are alumni. And so they actually gave the documentation. They gave the history of the family to Howard University, University of Pennsylvania alumni has documentation. One of my cousins was the first African-American to attend Yale. So Yale has documentation. And then some of the historic societies have documentation. When I graduated, I didn't go back to my schools or my alma maters and say, hey, you should have my family documentation in your records. So how did that come about? As far as I know, the alumni department asked for it. They have things like pages of the family Bible. And a lot of the documentation also is with the Quakers. So they're part of the historic collection at Haverford College and Swarthmore College. So if you Google Cyrus Bustle, you'll see there's a number of documentation, including at William and Mary, there is a speech that Cyrus wrote and delivered to enslaved people. And William and Mary has that original document, handwritten. And Cyrus begins by talking about the fact that he was born as part of the estate of Samuel Bustle, his grandfather, and that he was sold to a Judge Allen after his grandfather died. So as part of collecting African-American history at universities, I was able to find these documents. Have you helped other people in their journey to collect their African-American lineage for their families? I have. One of the projects I'm working on is Eaton Cemetery, which is an African-American cemetery, opened in 1902, But it's the depository for older cemeteries. Where is that located? Springfield, Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia. As Philadelphia grew and they needed to put sewage systems and things like that in, they they literally dug up old African-American cemeteries or they dug them up if they were in a, a church graveyard and they were reinterred at Eden Cemetery. So one of the things I'm doing now with Eden Cemetery is that we are building a database of the somewhere around 90,000 people that are buried there. 
and we're building. Did you say ninety thousand? Yeah. And then some of them are notable African-Americans, people like William Steele, who ran the Underground Railroad, Jean-Pierre Burr, the son of Aaron Burr, the third vice president of the United States. Octavius Caddo is buried there. So the, there are a lot of Philadelphians from the 1700s 1800s that were reinterred at Eden, and there are many people who are buried there. I have probably at least 90 members of my family buried at Eden Cemetery. So this project's important to me. We're identifying people, uploading them to a software program called Find a Grave. And then from anywhere in the world, if you're looking for a person that's buried at Eden, you can log in and get information about that person. One of the famous people buried at Eden Cemetery is a famous Philadelphian, Marian Anderson. She grew up in West Philadelphia, and her church actually paid for her singing lessons and for clothes for her to attend concerts. And when she lived in Connecticut, once she retired, but wanted to be buried in Philadelphia, so they brought her body back, and she was buried in Eaton Cemetery. Actually, when you drive into the cemetery, she has a pretty large headstone that you see on the left-hand side as you're driving in. People come all the time and take pictures of her headstone, but they do it with real dignity and respect for her. Have you been by her headstone? I've been by many times. Actually, as as you're driving in, you have to pass it to get to the office or even attending funerals. Drive past it. It is certainly worth seeing. Your family is buried in the same cemetery as Marian Anderson. And knowing the history of the DAR and how they discriminated against her and did not allow her to sing in Constitution Hall, how do you reconcile that passing her gravesite where your family is also buried and joining the DAR? So I think that the DAR was wrong in not allowing her to to sing. I'm very grateful to Eleanor Roosevelt for giving her the opportunity to sing. I have cousins that knew her personally, and everything they say about her is like she was just a wonderful person. My Great, great aunt and Mary Anderson grew up on the same street. And according to my uncle, they played together as children. So that's another milestone that's important to my family. How does that sit with you joining the organization that discriminated against (laughs) someone that your family played with as a child? Again, I see my membership in the DAR as protecting the documentation is proving the history of our family. And I kind of, sorry they discriminated against her, but on the other hand, I want the recognition of our family being in a group that discriminated against Marian Anderson. What does that mean to you? It means that she rose above discrimination and they weren't the DAR were not the only people that discriminated against her but she rose above that because she was a decent person and you know so many of my family members had to face that kind of discrimination Paul Robeson for one William Douglas who's a another artist in the family they both 
it's it's almost like it's cyclical where history repeats itself where Marian Anderson, Paul Ropes and all had to fight for their dignity because they were people of color. Have you helped people in other ways as far as finding their family heritage? I'm working with a genealogy group to and that's one of the purposes is to help people or share your information. I've also found some of my white family who have not known about Cremona and her children. They only knew about the white side of the family. And then so they were surprised to find out that Richard Moray had a whole second family that they knew nothing about. So Richard Moray had another family other than Cremona? Yes, he had a white wife and, and children. So he had two separate families. How did the white family find you? There is a documentary about the Moray family, who was Elizabeth's sister, her son, and daughter-in-law have the only known wedding portraits of an African-American family at that peri- during that period of time. And those portraits are on loan right now from the family to the Art Museum of Philadelphia. Did you meet some of these family members, the white family members who descended from the Richard Moray line? I've met two of them, and I've had email exchanges with several others. How did that meeting go? They were, as I said, they didn't know the second family existed. We knew about them. They did not know about us. And and, and the gentleman said that he knew a good bit about his history, but no one ever told him that Richard had the second family. Was the meeting friendly? How did you all receive each other? They were sometimes indifferent to meeting us. How was the meeting arranged? Who initiated the meeting? So a couple things happened. One is that they got my email. So they, we were able to email back and forth. And I willingly share information. So I uh, will share what I have. One woman that I, I, I met found out she had African DNA and And that's how she sought me out because she didn't know where this African DNA came from. And as it turned out, her grandfather decided to cross the line and move to Kentucky and be white. So her DNA showed 30-40% of African-American DNA and she wanted to know how, how she had African DNA. So we communicated back and forth. And then last year, she actually came into Philadelphia. And we went to the Paul Robeson house, we went to the art museum to see the portraits, we went to the uh, historic society. I was her tour guide for the day in showing her the contributions of her family. And then in Philadelphia, there are historic markers. There are at least five that are members of my family, and they're located in different parts of the city. There's one for Cyrus Bustle that's located in front of where his bakery once was. There's Gertrude Moselle, who was a teacher for 30 years in the Philadelphia school system. David Bustle Bowser, who was a, a painter and painted the flags, 11 flags for the United States Colored Troops. I think when you look at our history, you are impressed. And even as your family passed for white, the black side of our family is, I think, something to be proud of. You met with this woman. She descended from members of your family who decided to pass for white. 
she discovered that she had African ancestry. She saw my name on Ancestry. Her grandfather was on my tree. She sent me a message through Ancestry. She said she was going to be in the Philadelphia area, and could we meet and talk? So we did. Was it awkward when you met, the both of you met, or was it more of just curiosity? How did that go? I think she wanted to know more about her grandfather. And one of the things she said to me is, you know, she... He would never talk about his family or his side of the family, and he would disappear. He would go off to see his family, and he would never take his his white family with him. So she was very surprised that she had African DNA, but she wanted to know more about who her grandfather was. So she was receptive to the information I was I gave her. Who was her grandfather in your family? His name was Cecil Jones, and he was the brother of my third great-grandmother. When you parted, the two of you parted ways, what were the feelings between the two of you? I already knew all the information, so it was information for her. And she, she thanked me. She wanted to know this information, and I was able to give it to her, so she was grateful that I had done it. And when she got back home, she sent me an email again, you know, saying it was important to her to know this information about her grandfather. Have you been in contact with any of the other family members? My grandmother's brother also left the area and he was colored when he was in Philadelphia. And then he was white when he went to Boston and raised his children. And I talked with his granddaughter as well because she had no idea the family history. And so I was able to share with her her family history. And so my grandmother and her, her grandfather were siblings, so it was a lot closer than great-grandfathers or several removed relatives. This woman assumed that her family was white, but then found out that, well, actually, they were passing for white. They completely just decided that once they he moved his family to Boston, they were white. And he cut off communications with his siblings that were in Philadelphia. Were his siblings that he left behind still claiming their African roots? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. But they were also probably as fair as he was, but they remained African-American. And what was this family name? Abrams. That's my grandmother's maiden name. Who was the gentleman that left for Philadelphia? What was his name? His name was Percival Abrams. On his mother's side, she was a bustle, and on the father's side, Percival Abrams was a Jewish person from Jamaica that had come to the United States as a child. His family was Jewish. They immigrated to Jamaica from Europe. How does your complex history shape you today? I am grateful to know all of this information, and which is one of the reasons I share it with everybody that's interested in hearing it. It's complex. It is different. You know, very few people can actually document back to the 1640s when their European family first came to the colonies, you know, or very few African-Americans 
know the last slave in their family or the fact that they were very active in the Underground Railroad in um, fighting for this country in the Civil War. So I am proud of the history I have and I learn more all the time. The Aaron Burr's granddaughter marrying into her family is fairly new information. There's a book called The Diary of a Colored Girl, Emily Davis. She's married into our family. So I keep learning new things about my family that make me extremely proud. Mm -hmm.